Wow. You guys are great. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks, Brother Rick. I know how hard it is to, to uh, step aside from a pulpit and let some upstart uh, come along and, and uh, wail away up here, but I uh, really appreciate that. And uh, Mel, uh, Neil, too. Neil let me do the Sunday school hour, and we had a great time um, looking into the Word, Rightly Divided. Really appreciate your church's stand on that, and uh, the Lord's blessed and we, uh, we certainly appreciate that. Now, we have to correct a few things here. I am a pastor of Grace Community Church in Sioux Falls. I just am part of a uh, sort of a cycle that they have. The, their elders do preaching as well, so I fill in there occasionally. And, uh, yeah, I am the author of the mystery, so I guess that's right. I'm going to be talking, though, about the heart of the mystery Brother Rick uh, called me, or not uh, called me, uh, what did you email or text, I forget, and uh, said, well, what, what is the title of your message? And I hadn't really thought of one. I knew what I wanted to say, but I hadn't thought of it, and I thought, you know, the heart of the mystery. And so we're going to be talking about that. When we talk about the mystery in grace circles, what do we usually think of? We think of things like, well, it's, it's the secret that was given to the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is our apostle today. Do you ever stop and think about that? I've talked to people from uh, maybe a more of a charismatic Pentecostal background, and they'll say, well, we have an apostle at our church. Have you ever, ever been to a situation like that? You know what I like to tell them? We've got an apostle, too. The guy's name is Paul, and he wrote half of the New Testament. How do you like that? Well, it's not Paul the man. It's a message, isn't it? that was given to him as the apostle of the Gentiles. So, so what is the heart of the mystery? Is it, does it mean, well, we rightly divide the word of truth, or we understand the difference between law and grace, the difference between uh, the earthly program and the heavenly program? Uh, that's all part of the mystery. Those were things that were kept secret in the Old Testament times and during the time of Christ on the, on the earth that were later revealed to the apostle Paul. But what is the heart of that message? And I want to point out that the heart of the message of the mystery is actually the cross of Christ. Now, the cross is not only the subject of the mystery that was revealed to Paul, it's the subject of prophecy as well. The cross of Christ is really the goal of the entire Bible. That's what the Bible is about. The Apostle Peter talked about this. He said that uh, the prophets searched about the things that... Uh, were of Christ, his sufferings, and the glory that should follow. That's really the theme. And you can go to so many Old Testament passages and see what things have been re had been revealed about the cross. If you go to uh, Isaiah 53, for example, it talks about Christ and his crucifixion and some of the details, but even more detailed, I think, is uh, Psalm 22, where it talks about the fact that he would be surrounded by dogs. That's a reference to the Gentiles. And that the assembly of the wicked would be there. That would be the unbelieving Israelites and so forth. Uh, they pierced me and so forth. It, it just describes, he even says at the start of Psalm 22, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So certainly the cross was also part of the prophetic program. But there were certain things about what Christ accomplished on the cross that were not revealed in the Old Testament. And those are part of the mystery. 
Now, I asked uh, Brother Rick, I was going to bring this book. I have a copy of this book. It's uh, Explore the Book by J. Sidlow Baxter. Anybody ever heard of that? It's kind of a good overview of the Bible. He's not a mid-Acts Grace dispensationalist, but he's one of those guys that comes so close at times. I had a friend once that used to say, if you slap them on the back, they'd spit grace. He gets, he gets that close to it sometimes. And I just happened to pick my copy of it. Uh, I, I didn't bring it along, but I asked Brother Rick. I knew he'd have one. He had two. So, <laughs> so uh, he shared. No, I just want to read a little bit because it, it kind of caught me off guard here. Uh, like I said, just a couple of days ago, after I gave the title to Brother Rick, The Heart of the Mystery, I opened up and to see what he would have to say about one of our main passages I want to look at. And by the way, how long do I have here? 11.45, all right. And he has, right above the section that we're going to be looking at in some detail, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the heart of Pauline theology. It's right there in the heading. And uh, he lays out some great things. He says, Paul completes the first part of his epistle, that is 2 Corinthians, by unveiling that which lay at the very heart of his ministry and message. It occupies chapter 5, verses 14 through 21. And the, its center point is, one died for all and rose again, verses 14 and 15. But we call attention to the wherefore, which arises out of this in verse 16. Wherefore, henceforth know we no man after the flesh. Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. And he goes on to expound on that, uh, that wonderful passage. So what I really want to talk about is the subject of reconciliation, because that's the heart of the mystery. Now, you might say, well, reconciliation, isn't that found throughout the Bible? I'm going to give you a really quick uh, jet tour overview of how the word reconcile, reconciliation is found in our Bibles, and then we'll uh, show you how it's found in, in Paul's epistles particularly. And uh, we're going to start with 1 Samuel chapter 29 and verse 4. And I'm simply pointing these out as examples of how the word uh, reconcile is used in various passages. First uh, Samuel, is that correct? First Samuel chapter 29 and verse 4. Uh, and the princes of the Philistines, boy, that's just not looking right. I don't see the word reconcile in there. Try Second Chronicles 29 verse 24. Oh, was it in there? Go back to the first one. I didn't read far enough. Ah, Okay, wherewith should he reconcile himself unto his master? Thank you. Yeah, it was in there. And, and that's actually a Hebrew word, ratzah. Ratzah means to be pleased with. So that's not talking about a spiritual reconciliation of any kind. It's just talking about uh, between uh, uh, two individuals. Okay, the second one, 2 Chronicles 29, 24. 2 Chronicles 29, 24. And the priests killed them, and they made reconciliation with their blood. Now, there you do have more of a spiritual aspect of reconciliation. Um, that word, chata, in the Hebrew, literally means uh, to, to miss, to miss the mark, like when you sin. And so it's a, a reconciliation for sin in the sense that blood, the blood of the uh, sacrifice, accomplished a certain kind of reconciliation. But in the Old Testament, it is a particular type of reconciliation. And let's go to Leviticus 6 and verse 30 for the next passage. 
And there it says, And no sin offering whereof is of any blood is brought into the tabernacle of the congregation to reconcile with all in the holy place shall be eaten, it shall be burnt with the fire. And here the word reconcile comes from a very familiar Old Testament word, kafar, which is usually translated atone or atonement. Uh, we won't look all these up, but the word atone or atonement is found 10 times in the book of Exodus, over 50 times in Leviticus, 17 times in Numbers, and in uh, dozens of other places where it's translated various ways. Uh, Leviticus chapter 6 and verse 30, Leviticus 8 and verse 15, very similar. He slew it, and Moses took the blood and put the uh, put it on the horns of the altar round about with his finger and purified the altar and poured the blood at the bottom of the altar and sanctified it to make reconciliation upon it. Kafar, to cover. And one of the distinctions of the word kafar or atonement in the Old Testament is that all that that did was literally cover the sin. The whole idea was that it placed something in God's view to cover up the transgression. Uh, also in Leviticus 16 and verse 20, we find this uh, same word translated reconciliation, uh, reconciling, when he hath made an end of reconciling the holy place and the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. And this is typical of how the word reconcile, reconciliation, is used in the Old Testament when it's translated reconcile, usually translated atonement. Now, I know sometimes in our hymns we'll sing, uh, Christ hath for sin, atonement made, and, and we'll use the word in that general sense of the sacrifice of Christ. But technically speaking, and, uh, you know, I apologize if I get too technical here, but words mean things, and words are important. And the fact is, that when the Old Testament sacrifices were made, the book of Hebrews explains the blood of bulls and goats could never, what? Take away sin. Well, what did they do then? They covered it. And I think there's a real symbolism to this, especially when you get into some of the similar words in the New Testament. For example, uh, Look at Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 17. We're skipping a couple of passages here for time's sake. I, I don't want to cut myself short getting to the, the heart of the mystery. Hebrews 2.17, Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest uh, in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. Now there, the word reconciliation is hilaskamai, which is also the word translated propitiation. And we're going to distinguish between these in a moment. And here's a good illustration of it. Hebrews 9, verse 5. We find that same word that was translated reconciliation in Hebrews 2. Propitiation is the same meaning over in Hebrews 9 and verse 5. And over it, the cherubims of glory shadowing the, what? Mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. The mercy seat was that lid of the Ark of the Covenant. And 
the Bible says the Jews require a sign. And that's because God used many signs to illustrate truth to Israel. And I think one of the greatest signs of illustrating the need for atonement in the Old Testament was the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant contained what? You had the law, the Ten Commandments, the tablets. You had uh, Aaron's rod that budded in there. And you had a pot of manna, kind of to memorialize the provision God made in the wilderness. But on top of the Ark of the Covenant, and imagine kind of like a cedar chest. Do they still have those, the hope chests that ladies used to have, you know, hoping they'd get married someday, put all their goodies in there. And on the cover, about that size, and the cover of it, this, this object of furniture was made out of acacia wood, a desert plant, covered with gold. And the cherubims were, were put up on the, the lid, and they gazed down at the mercy seat, or the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. The word mercy seat comes from the same word translated propitiation. What does propitiation mean? It means a satisfaction. In other words, it means God is satisfied with the sacrifice that has been made. And in the Old Testament times, the symbolism was, was uh, very vivid because what does the law do, according to the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 3? It says the letter, which refers to the law, the letter killeth. Why did the law kill? Well, go back and read the Old Testament. Remember the time when they came out of Egypt? God gave them a law, and one of them was to honor the Sabbath day. And a young man went out to pick up some firewood on Saturday, the Sabbath, and they got together and said, hey, we found this guy doing this. Uh, what should we do? Well, I'll go ask God. You know what God told him? Stone him. What does the law do if you break it? Kills you. And so the letter killeth, but the Spirit gives life. So what did that mercy seat provide as the cherubim are viewing, and literally God views the mercy seat, what would God see inside of that box? He'd see that law. He would see the Israelites breaking that law. But what came between his view of the law? The mercy seat. And what was on the mercy seat? The blood of the sacrifice. And so the blood covered the broken law. That's how forgiveness worked in Old Testament times. Now, I'll tell you what, that's better than no forgiveness at all, wouldn't you say? <laughs> if God said, if you want to be forgiven, you commit this sin, you bring this sacrifice, I will forgive you. That's a great deal. Now, you had to believe God. You had to believe that he would really do what he said he would do. You had to act on it. You had to bring that sacrifice. By the way, how many of you are glad we don't have to do it that way anymore? We'd have, we'd have quite a trail of blood going here, wouldn't we? <laughs> week after week if we all had to bring a sacrifice for the sin we commit from time to time. But it'd be better than no forgiveness at all. So that's how atonement worked. Let's go to one more passage before I really get into the, the subject, and that is Romans chapter 5 and verse 11. And here's a place where the translators have used the word atonement, 
Uh, it is actually the same word that's translated reconciled in the near context. So we'll read it together with verse 10, if you can put that up as well. Uh, Romans chapter 5, verses 10 and 11. Verse 10 says, For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Now, which I just want to point out in this verse a very important point. And uh, <clears throat> I don't see anyone drifting off yet, but if you are, I, I want you to get this. Because it's going to be important to the rest of our message. Reconciliation and salvation are two different things. Okay? Now, they're related, obviously, and we're going to show you how. But don't think that reconciliation is always a synonym for salvation. Okay? Because it's not. And we're going to point that out. And he makes a distinction here. When we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Do you believe that? It, well, that's what it says, right? <laughs> um, the death of Christ accomplished something. And we're going to see what it is in 2 Corinthians. Then he says, much more, being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Verse 11, and not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement, which again, it's the same word that's translated reconciliation. So we have received the reconciliation. Now, I want to point out that reconciliation as Paul uses it, and he uses uh, three particular words, they're all related, and they're only words found in Paul's epistles. They're not found anywhere else. Catalasso, catalage, and I'm not a Greek scholar, by the way, but catalasso, we have an O on the end of a Greek word, it's usually a verb, right? Catalage, a noun. Apocatalato is a verb that's intensified by the prefix. So, let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And here's really the, the heart of the mystery that we're talking about, because here the Apostle Paul uses that word, uh, catalasso. And I'll give you the definition. Here's the definition of the word catalasso. Uh, it simply means a change. A change. So, it's going to talk about a change that takes place that took place with Christ when he died for our sins and how that change affected the world. Hey, look at that. I didn't even know he was going to put that up there, but I'm glad it said the same thing I just said. <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. For the love of Christ constraineth us because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. This verse alone deserves a whole weekend of, of Bible conferences because it lays out one of the most important truths of the gospel. And that is Christ died for all. Okay, And, you know, I emphasize that because there, to this day, and, and I see it more and more now than I ever have, to this day, there are preachers, famous preachers, well-known preachers, who will openly say Christ only died for the elect. They will boldly say that. Uh, one guy's initials are John MacArthur. I mean, J.M. And I, I pick on him, but only because 
he will come right out and say that Christ only died for the elect. That's called limited atonement. That is, that is heresy from, from the devil. That's a doctrine of demons. And I give him kudos for when he's right. He, you said you kept your church open during COVID. So did he. And I say, good for him. He was very bold to do that in California, of all places. And I've, I'm not diminishing that a bit. But he's wrong on that limited atonement stuff. Christ. Look at the verse again. We thus judge that if one died for, what? All. And it's not all the elect. It's not all who will eventually be saved. It's all. It's all mankind. Okay? And he goes on and says it again in verse 15, and that he died for all, that they which live. Now, not everybody lives. Who are they who live? That's you and I, if you've trusted Christ, that they who live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Wherefore, henceforth now know we no man after the flesh, Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. Now, I know we, we try to make a lot of dispensational hay off of this verse, and it's true that we don't follow Christ after the flesh like Peter, James, and John did. We follow him the way Paul did, like we're told in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 1. Paul says, I beseech you be followers of me as I also am of Christ. So we understand that. But there's so much more to that in this verse and more, more than that in this verse. Uh, we have known Christ after the flesh. You know, before you're saved, you, have a, you probably have some view of Christ, right? There are some who believe, well, he was a good man. Well, that's true. But was that all he was? No, he was much more than just a good... Some believe, he, well, he was a prophet. Or he was a special messenger from God. Well, yeah, he was all those things. But he was the son of God. He was very God in the flesh. So when you're saved, you come to a different view of Christ. But you also come to a different view of man. Again, look at verse 16. Henceforth know we no man after the flesh. Before you were saved, how did you look at the world around you? Well, you probably saw that there were some pretty bad people. You probably saw there's probably some pretty good people, and you, you probably tended to categorize people according to their, their lifestyle, their, maybe their, uh, you know, <laughs> maybe their race, maybe their uh, nationality. You, you might have looked at people differently, but once you've trusted Christ, you don't look at people that way anymore, do you? Now you look at them as lost souls in need of a Savior, all that other stuff doesn't matter anymore. In fact, that's one of the points that Paul makes so clear, isn't it? In Christ, there is no male, female, uh, Greek, Scythian, barbarian. You know, he goes and listens. He says, no, there's no difference between that. Now we're all the same before God. In unbelief, we're all the same. We're all lost. In belief, we're the same. We're one in Christ. So henceforth know we no man after the flesh. Verse 17, therefore, if any man be in Christ, and that is probably the key phrase of 
all of Paul's writings. Did you know that outside of Paul's writings, you only find that expression about three times. I think Peter uses it a few times, in Christ. You know how many times Paul uses it? For years, I said 70 times, because that's what I read somewhere. And I started digging in and trying to find every time it's in Christ, in Jesus Christ, in Christ Jesus, in the Lord. I came up with about 120. So that's a key feature of our relationship with God, particularly in this dispensation, is that we are united with Christ. He's our head, we're his body, and that is where our identity lies today. It's in Christ. And if you're in Christ, it says you're a new creature. You're a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given us the ministry of reconciliation. Now, I came to see the word rightly divided about 1978. Oop. <laughs> it's going back a couple of years. And I started attending uh, the first Bible conference I went to. Uh, a guy named C.R. Stam was there. Anybody ever heard of C.R. Stam? Oh, there's a few of you. Uh, he's one of the old timers. And uh, one of the things that you would hear them talk about almost every conference you went to was our great commission. Our great commission. Because we understand we're not under the kingdom commission. And by the way, the great commission that was given to the 12 was a great commission. You know, go ye into all the world, preach the gospel, teach all nations and so forth. But they were going out with the gospel of the kingdom. That's not what we preach today. We preach the gospel of the grace of God. We're not offering the nations a kingdom like Peter did in Acts chapter 3 when he said, if you'll repent, Israel, he'll send back Jesus Christ. He literally was offering the kingdom then. But, of course, they wouldn't have it. But we're not offering that. We're offering salvation through faith in Christ alone based on this passage. And I can remember those great old <laughs> preachers, Stam and uh, uh, Harlan Shriver. He was a, he was a great old-time preacher uh, with the Lord. Uh, Wynn Johnson, he was a, he was a great old-time preacher. I mean, I could, I could go on and on with these old guys. But you know what they talked about all the time? Our great commission is the ministry of reconciliation. And we really have two responsibilities in this dispensation. The apostle writes to Timothy and he says, God desires that all men be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. That, that's, that's really what our job is. The first part of that commission is right here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 19, to wit, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. Now, when he says God was in Christ, he doesn't mean to say Christ was just a man and God sort of possessed him. No, he's simply saying God was in Christ because Christ is God. God was reconciling the world to himself. And he's not talking about Christ's earthly ministry of teaching about the kingdom he's talking about the death of christ and that's why again he starts out with the subject 
If one died for all, verse 15, that he died for all. So when he says God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, he's talking about what happened at the cross. What did the cross accomplish for the world? And again, the world here is the world of mankind, all mankind. Remember the basic definition of reconcile, to change. So what changed when Christ paid the price of all mankind's sin? Did it automatically save all mankind? Absolutely not. And I know that from this passage because at the end of verse 20, he says, we pray you in Christ's stead be ye reconciled to God. Why would he have to say that if everyone was automatically saved? They're not. But everyone, the whole world was changed. What changed? Verse 19, God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now, I think many of you probably have studied the biblical Pauline principle of imputation. Imputation means that God puts something on your account. Or he doesn't put something on your account. We all have a spiritual bank account, so to speak. Before you're saved, how much is in your spiritual bank account on the positive side? Uh, nothing. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So you got, you got nothing. What do you got on the negative side? Debt. Sin debt. A life of sin debt. You've got the sin debt of Adam passed on to you just because you were born into the human race. For by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin and so that all, all death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. So you've got a debt of sin. When you put your trust in Christ, the Bible says your faith is counted as righteousness. Now what do you have in your bank account? Righteousness. Is it your righteousness? No, because right here in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21 it says, For he, that's God the Father, hath made him, that's God the Son, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God. In him. So when you put your faith in Christ, faith, your faith is counted as righteousness. And it's not your righteousness, it's God's righteousness. I like the way Joel McGarvey says it. He says, if you want to get to heaven, you've got to be as good as God. Have you ever thought about that? How many of you are as good as God? Not in yourself, you're not. But in Christ, you're as good as God. And that's why he says, he uses that that phrase again, in him. He was made sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made. And that is a subjunctive. In other words, it's not automatic. It might, might be. How might that happen? By believing the gospel, putting your faith in Christ, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's just one of the many blessings that come along with the program when you are in Christ by faith. Reconciliation 
is the change that God made because of Christ where he could now say, I'm not imputing your trespasses unto you anymore. Does that sound like good news? Hey, is that what the gospel is? That's what it means, right? Good news. But did you know not imputing your trespasses is only part of the equation? God does that. So here's your, here's your line. Here's your sin. God takes care of the line on down. But here's righteousness. Without Christ, you're still down here. With Christ or in Christ, you're automatically, you know, you're not just, oh, I'm a little better now. I'm working my way. No, you jump right up to there. You get God's righteousness the moment you put your faith in Christ. That's good news. That is what we have to preach. Why would we not want to tell someone that good news? I mean, <laughs> you're not going to find a better deal <laughs> anywhere than this ministry, this word of reconciliation. I want to go just through a few more in the minutes we have and look at other ways that Paul uses it. There's actually five different kinds of reconciliation that uh, the Apostle Paul mentions. The first one, and I'm just going to go through them very quickly. Um, the first one is in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 11, and that is with regard to marriage. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 11, it says, But and if she depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. Isn't that interesting? Um, when, a, when a couple has split up for whatever reason, and by the grace of God, they choose to come back together. Even in modern times, what do we call that? They've reconciled. That's a wonderful word. They've reconciled. And so Paul uses that term, the same term there, to describe a change of status. What changed? They've gone from being unfriendly, maybe even feeling like enemies, to having been rejoined as one flesh. So that's one way he uses it. He also uses it in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 16 of the reconciliation between Jew and Gentile. Now, the modern uh, times have illustrated to us just how much enmity there is between Jew and Gentile. We're seeing that on display on television, newscasts. Uh, anywhere you look today, you see enmity between Jew and Gentile, don't you? It's, a, it's on full display. What happens in Christ? Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 14. For he is our peace who hath made both one, both who? Jew and Gentile, hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. Paul is using kind of a play on words here because there was a literal middle wall of partition at the temple site in the Old Testament times. And there was a place called the Court of the Gentiles. And the court of the Gentiles was where the proselytes could come, those who had adopted the Jewish faith and they weren't uh, Jewish by nationality. But they were not to pass that point. 
the historian uh, Josephus, who was a Jew, he lived in the time of Christ, he was not a believer in Christ, but he recorded many, many things about that day, and he records an inscription on that wall at the court of the Gentiles that said, no Gentile may transgress beyond this point, but to his death. Whoa, that's the middle wall of partition. But what has Christ done? He's broken down the middle wall of partition. We now have access. Verse 15, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances. When's the last time you heard that preached at a denominational church? What do you think, what would your reception be if you walked into most churches and said, hey, I've got good news for you. God has abolished the law of commandments contained in ordinances. Would they go, oh, yay, we're glad to hear that. Isn't that what it says? Having abolished, oh, you don't believe in the Ten Commandments. But we're not under the law, we're under grace. Okay, we need to understand that. Verse 16 or verse, uh, verse 15, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. You know, a wonderful thing happens when a Jew and a Gentile both become believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Guess what? The enmity is gone. Now, they are one in Christ. They have been changed. The status has been changed. Verse 17, And came and preached peace to them who were afar off and to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. So there's another reconciliation, the reconciliation of Jew and Gentile. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 20. And this is the reconciliation of governmental authority. And I'm just going to quickly mention, this is, this is so cool. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 20. And here's a, here's a passage that is totally taken out of its context by the universalist who thinks that reconciliation means you're automatically saved. That's not what it's saying at all. In this context, the Apostle Paul is talking about the governments of the universe that God created. Verse 16, For by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. When God created the universe, he created a governmental hierarchy that he placed both angels and men into. And some of them rebelled. In the heavenly realm, you had certain angels that followed Lucifer and became fallen angels. They're known as principalities and powers. Why? Because they held a position and are still allowed to hold it until God finally deals with them in the middle of the tribulation period. And he's going to replace those fallen angels with the body of Christ. And so in verse 20, he says, Having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself. I say whether they be things in heaven or things in earth. What things? 
the thrones, dominions, principalities, and powers. God's going to reclaim all of the thrones of the earth someday. He's going to put the 12 apostles in 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. He's going to reclaim the thrones in the heavenly realm by kicking out Satan's domin uh, minions and putting the body of Christ back in there. That's how he will change those positions. We've already talked about the reconciliation of the world, changing from God imputing sins to man to God not imputing sins to man. And then the final reconciliation of 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 20 is the reconciliation of man back to God. And this is where each of us is before the Lord. We have the choice. God has already done everything that needed to be done for us to approach him. There's, there's nothing more to do. Verse 20, now then we are ambassadors for Christ as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you. And that word pray is this very intense word. It literally means to beg. We beg you to be reconciled to God. We pray you in Christ's stead. Christ isn't here in the flesh anymore. We're his ambassadors. And if anyone's going to hear this message, it's going to be you or I that tell them. It's nobody else. But that's a wonderful thing. We pray, we beg you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. How is that done? By faith. Have you believed the gospel of Christ's death, his burial, his resurrection? Because that's the good news for today. I once ministered, to, I was going back, brother, to Colorado. <laughs> I once ministered to a young lady, um, her and her husband had had problems. They had split. They were actually getting married to each other again the second time. And uh, I was sharing the gospel with them, and, uh, and the young lady said, this just sounds too, too easy. It sounds too good to be true, that I can be, be saved by just believing that Christ died for my sins, was buried, and rose again. And I said, well, I've shown you from the scripture that that's, that's what the gospel is, and it it's not that it's too easy. It was hard for God. That's, that's my, you know, it, was, it was easy for God to create a universe. It was hard for him to send his own son to go and pay the price of our sin. That's the hardest thing he ever did. But aren't you glad he did it? And she trusted Christ. And for the last 30-plus years, she's never wavered from that and has, uh, has walked with the Lord. Trust Christ today. Brother Rick's going to come and, and talk to you about that. Let's pray right before he comes, shall we? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the wonderful heart of the mystery. Yes, we love those truths of, uh, of distinguishing those things that differ. We, we love to see where we are in God's program and, and to know uh, where, where our standing is in Christ. We love all that stuff and, and don't want to diminish that, but... Oh, how we appreciate the heart of the mystery, that message of reconciliation that was committed to the Apostle Paul for us to share with everybody. And thank you that that's done right here at this church and many places around the world. I pray for each one. If someone's come in today and has not trusted you, that they might do so just now. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.
Amen. Thank you, Brother Joel. And if you have not by faith trusted Christ as your Savior, what are you waiting on? The most important decision, the most important issue you'll ever settle is will you believe or will you reject? That offer of salvation is still a free gift. And if you've never trusted Christ, this is the day that you can settle that issue forever. Amen? Amen. And as Brother Joel said, the hard work's already been done. Christ accomplished that. And today God's word is very, very clear. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. What you believe is important. You believe that he died for your sins, was buried, and he rose again. See, then God gets all the glory. There are no high fives. There are no slaps on the back. Way to go. The glory goes to him. And not only that, we are to be ambassadors of that good news. And isn't God wonderful the way he's making it easy for us today to share? Just everybody watching the news and they're so keyed on what's going on overseas and everybody has questions that makes it easy that we should be answering. People are interested in spiritual and eternal things when things sort of get riled up over in the Mideast. Let's take advantage of that and tell people exactly what. It's not what's coming, it's who's coming and making sure we share that. Let's stand this morning and be dismissed. Joel and Lynn, Joel's going to be back there at the door with me, and Linda's going to be over here with the book table, and I encourage you to, to go and, and, and take a look at all of these books that, uh, that Joel and Linda have over there. Let's pray. Father, just thank you so much for your goodness and your mercy. Father, thanking, thank you for allowing us to be part of that plan of salvation. Father, not only as we enjoy our own salvation and our standing in Christ, but, Father, you make us part of the message as we share with the lost and dying world that Jesus saves. Father, may we be faithful to carry to a lost world that it can be reconciled to you through Christ Jesus, that that enmity has been dissolved. From God's perspective, salvation is offered to all who believe. Father, may we be faithful in carrying that message to a lost world. Thank you for Joel and Linda. Father, we pray for their ministry. Pray your protection over them as, as they travel down to Alabama. Father, keep them safe. Use them in a mighty way. And Father, we pray all these things in Christ's name and for his sake.